Hello. 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 <laughs> <laughs> Hello. <laughs> <laughs> that was all. That was uh, weird. Hello and welcome to uh, Quacks Who Quaff, the uh, podcast that combines a love of the history of medical sciences with a love of wine. Uh, my name is Jamie and I am once again delighted to be joined with uh, by Kim. Hello Kim. Hello Jamie. Hello Bella. Hello Jamie. And Canal. Hello Canal. JT, good to see you. Good to see you too. Uh, and uh, once again we gather around the mic. <laughs> To discuss the history of medical sciences whilst enjoying a bottle of wine, which Canal is so desperate to get into, he's not waited for me to introduce it. Canal, what is the bottle of wine today? Today, Jamie, we have The Liberator, episode 22, by Richard Kelly's South African Wine Exploits. We discovered this wine about a month ago when we went over to Delilah's. We're a little plug for Delilah's there. We do like Delilah's. And it's a really interesting wine. So this is a, a wine that was cast in 2003. So it's more than 15 years old. It is a 40%, 60% blend of Cabernet Sauvignon and Shiraz. And it's called Blood and Chocolate. The blood refers to the Shiraz. The chocolate refers to the Cabernet. And I, I can hardly actually remember what it tastes like. I remember we enjoyed it originally, but... So much so you bought three bottles. I bought it. three bottles, <laughs> and so here we are. We did say, I, I said I would buy a, a bottle specifically for this podcast, yes. so it'll be there. So Richard Kelly is a gentleman from near here, yeah. Leicester, I believe. He is not yeah. South African. Who went over to South Africa. Mm-hmm. And liberated said Liberated wines. this wine. He wanted Brilliant. to bring South African wine to the masses, because I suppose we don't think of South Africa when we think of wine. We think of other things. <laughs> Rugby. Rugby, yes, indeed. Well done. They let's won the World Cup very well. Anyway, let's open it up. Let's go for it. Oh, that's oh. not good. Well, so the corks kind of come apart, so that's not ideal. It's fine, don't worry, I've got this. <laughs> so it's, it's oh, you can tell it's an old it's bottle of wine. It's an old bottle of wine. Please don't ruin this bottle of wine. I am going to try not Please to cork don't. this now. I should at this point point out that uh, none of us are driving and none of us have work, so please drink responsibly at all times. Thank you. Nice little public health message there. Oh, I got it, I got it. Thank well done. Right, right. right. and that was Canal dicey. then, let's that was start. That was very smooth, Canal, no one noticed. Oh, bloody hell. That was, that cork is, you could tell it's an old, look at that. It's saturated, It yeah. is an old, old bottle of wine, you can tell the way that is. So let's Canal pour it out. has purple fingers now. So it's pouring a nice, di- not that deep actually. I seem to remember this was a darker wine when we had it first, but mm. I can't see you through it. Dark. Yeah, it's quite dark. It's dark, but it's not. There you go, Bella. Thank you. Looking excellent. All right then, let's have a so, little look. So, cheers, everyone. Cheers. Cheers. Cheers, chaps. So, let's have a little look at it. Putting it through some. Got quite long legs. Tealish. It's got a bit of teal to it, I would say. Give it a swish. I should say I've upgraded. Have you noticed I've upgraded the wine glasses from oh, last time? Very, very good for a podcast. That's but it. Yeah, the Lots glasses of swelling are very action. Nice. Just notes, notes the chink. I'm going to chink with Bella here. Just there's some length there. <laughs> it's the legs of the chinking. These are crystal wine glasses. They're quite They're high beautiful. quality. Mm. That yeah. is a nice wine. It's lovely wine, really nice. I approve of the tannins there. That's it. It's got some tannins, but it's still big and bold. Mm. It's very nice. We like that. Oh, it's good so stuff. while we sip on that, shall we introduce the topic of this week's podcast? So, my topic today. So we thought, I've thought a lot about this. So I was in a Schwartz round last month mm-hmm. and a Schwartz round for those not in the medical profession is a a round where we get together and we talk about sort of the emotional and social aspects of um, of patient care and um, all of us get together and kind of talk about our feelings and talk about the hardships and when it's good and when it's bad and all that sort of thing and I was doing a, a little bit about pharmacy and about being gatekeepers to drugs and one of the nurses was talking about poison she was kind of a non-pharmacy type person so she thought all drugs were poison and it got me thinking that 
all drugs maybe are kind of like poison in a weird way. So, and this kind of links into podcast number two, where we're talking about the Chechen hostage crisis, where we're talking about poison. Kunal's favourite podcast, right? I do now. love that Chechen hostage crisis. Not, not what happened to the people, <laughs> but I just found it very interesting. So, the, the question I'll pose to the panel, to my fellow quacks, is what's the difference between a poison and a medicine? <clears throat> I will say all medicines are poison. Hmm? But medicines have a desirable effect. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Maybe. A potential desirable effect. Mm -hmm. JT? Um, I believe rock and roll has taught us that your love is the drug. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Wow, wow. Uh, Alice Cooper has also said that your love is poison. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. That's quite an analogy. That's that's, that's insightful. And that girl is poison. <laughs> Absolutely. So women Said, um, love. I believe, I believe that was Belle Dev DeVoe. Yeah. I <laughs> think, it is it something like a weed is basically a plant where you don't want it, so is a poison just something that's having an effect you don't want, where I a think medicine so. is having an effect you do want? Exactly. I think that's exactly it. So the Oxford English Dictionary defines a poison as a substance that's capable of causing the illness or death of a living organism when introduced or absorbed to said organism. So a poison. And it notice it says a substance that has the capability of causing illness or death. Now, the Oxford definition of a medicine, noun, not verb, a drug or other preparation for the treatment or prevention of disease. Now, these two things are not mutually exclusive. Therefore, I agree with my darling wife in saying that all medicines are poisons. That was lecture number one at pharmacy school. Hmm. <laughs> and it makes sense. So I would, it's exactly like you say, so if you've got the beneficial effect of it, we'll call it a medicine. If you get the non-beneficial effect, we'll call it a poison. So as soon as you prescribe someone morphine and their pain is killed off the back of it, then that's medicine. If they're when they rest breathing, <laughs> when they stop breathing, you've given them poison. So it's an interesting thin line, and I suppose a lot of our role as healthcare professionals is making sure we use these poisons appropriately at the appropriate dose, what it might be, um, from a risk-benefit point of view to treat disease. So I always like this concept of poison. And it made me think as well that back in pharmacy school, do you remember that though we are... The law gives us pharmacists lots of powers around supplying and holding medicines and all these sort of things. We actually have a lot of rights around poisons. Poisons, yeah. So there's um, the Poisons Act. The Poisons Act, 1972, which is still in force. It was updated, I think, recently in 2015. It still gives pharmacists the right to control and supply all manner of different poisons and supply them to the public when needed. So there's two parts to the Poison Act. Uh, Well, there's four parts, but there's two important parts. So one would be um, the provision of regulated explosive precursors. So pharmacists are allowed to order, control, and supply the distribution of explosive precursors, things like high-strength hydrogen peroxide. So these are oxidative agents that can be used to make bombs. And part two, which are the, are the regulated non-medicinal poisons, these are things like cyanides. So we can order cyanide, lead, we can order lead, we can order oxalic acid. Very powerful things, but to be able to supply them, people have to have like home office permits. Yeah, don't expect to walk into your community pharmacy on the high and street and I'd, find... I'd like a vial of cyanide, please. <laughs> no. <laughs> and I'll be calling the police now. That is one of the parts of the act that you take note of everyone that comes, requests a supply, and if anything looks particularly dodgy, you um, report that to the police. Yeah, and particular things, even when people do come and supply, come and buy them, we have to report them to. We actually have to report them to the police. So oh. if people want to come in and buy, I don't know, like oxalic acid, which is used in like industrial processes, we have to take the name and ID of the people we sell it to and pass it on to the police and stuff like that. So it's an old right that pharmacists have that not that many people do. I think the only thing that I used to do was sell methylated spirits sometimes to... I think sometimes rat poison as well. So there's, yeah, there's an arsenic product that's got rat poison in it that we can get our hands on still, but 
again, it's it's all a bit historical. That's scary people to know. <laughs> <laughs> so it's it's amazing some of the powers we have that we don't even think about as it stands now, but it's all there. But let's talk about pop culture poisons because I think poisons are actually quite big in media. When I was thinking about it, I was looking at lots of different podcasts talking about po- poisons are big in media. Lots of lots of big poison cases that are all around. And so the first one that I thought of in terms of pop culture is we're all up with Game of Thrones. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Everybody watched the Game of Thrones. Sorry mm. if you people who are watching this pod, listening to this podcast aren't up with the old Game of Thrones. But um, there's a very potential famous, spoilers ahead. <laughs> potential spoilers ahead. So there's a very famous scene in Game of Thrones. I think it might be season three, season four, maybe. Purple wedding. Yes. Joffrey. <laughs> goes down mm-hmm. in a particularly way. JT's looking very absent here. I think he doesn't really know what's going off. No. I am aware of the Game of the Thrones. Mm. <laughs> so let's tell, let's explain. This is good, because it's good to have a Lehman that's been living in a cave for the last or even 15, ten years. Yeah. <laughs> Who would know this? <laughs> a Lehman? Lehman? Yeah, a Lehman. <laughs> so there's a very famous scene in Game of Thrones where this king, who is a bit of a twat, yep. gets uh, his comeuppance... Uh, poisoned by... Incidentally plays the part of a small kid in Batman Begins. There we are. <laughs> Trust Being you said. to know that. <laughs> but not he doesn't, the actual he doesn't, know, he doesn't know the main <laughs> pop culture. Batman throws the grappling hook at him, gives it to him as a present. Excellent. Have you ever heard of Michael Jackson? He's Yeah, he was the young one in the Jackson 5. <laughs> uh, <laughs> yes. <laughs> so, uh, everybody I'm sure remember this scene. Purple Wedding... Um, somebody slips, somebody, I'm not going to reveal it because that would be giving it away, slips something into the wine of Joffrey and Joffrey drinks it and a couple of minutes later he starts clawing in his throat being like, and he's dying and he's dying and he's dying. And he was poisoned and then we later find out who did it and the whole history of it. What if I told you that that was a real poison in real life or speculated to be a real poison in real life? It was based on it. Strychnine. Yay! Strychnine is um, postulated to be this poison that actually might have done that to Joffrey. So, strychnine, really interesting. Not a drug, because it's never really been a drug. It's not a medicinal product. It's a herbal product. It comes from plants. So, strychnine in the 1800s, 1900s, very popular. They used to process the plant, put it in water, and drink the tonic of strychnine, which used to help as a performance enhancer. And also a mild... um, antidepressant and muscle toner so to be able to increase muscle tone and things like that um, comes from the tree um, strychnus nux vomita vomica sorry vomica vomica strychnine nux vomica which is native still to india and south asia and this is a this is a lethal lethal tree in terms of this compound so it's a uh, nothing particularly special to the compound it's highly complex chiral aromatic compound um, you can make it, you can synthesize it from scratch, but it's very, very difficult to do. And it is a glycine receptor antagonist. So what this means is effectively it binds to glycine receptors. That's um, postsynaptic cleft. We're talking about some boring, boring pharmacology now. Basically, it completely destroys your body's ability to regulate nerve impulses. So usually your body is going nice, heavy nerve impulses mediated by glutamate. And usually these glycine things kind of mediate that and stop the stop the action potentials being generated and stop you from firing your nerves all the time. Strychnine completely stops your ability to do that. So effectively, you get constant contraction of nerve fibres, and you get so incredibly you become, really tense. you become tense, stiff, and unable to regulate your muscles. So your muscles just become paralyzed. constantly tensed and pa- ultimately paralysed paralyzed, completely. Yeah. So it's an it's an incredibly potent toxin, and it's one of the only um, substances known to man that can have this effect on glycine. There is one other chemical that does this effect, and you might see it. So think about our medics here. Think about a person who comes in with very who's very rigid, very stiff, perhaps off the back of a wound or something like that. What would you be thinking? Tetanus toxin. Tetanus toxin. So tetanus toxin off the back of Clostridium tetani is the only other substance we know of that can antagonise glycine in the same way as this strychnine. So it's absolutely lethal stuff. Milligrams will kill people. 
very relatively quickly as well. So it's been postulated that Alexander the Great, the great Greek king, inadvertently killed himself, was murdered or committed suicide by having strychnine put in his wine. Again, goes back to wine. And there is a testimonial by Diodorus, who was one of the subordinates of King Alexander at the time, who wrote down that the great king was struck with pain after downing a bowl of wine. After he downed this bowl of wine, he was struck with intense pain, clutched at his throat, and a few minutes later, succumbed. And a lot of people think that this is actually very consistent with strychnine poisoning. Somebody mm. poisoned him with strychnine, or he committed suicide with strychnine in his wine. Drinking a bowl of wine as well. I know. Mm -hmm. <laughs> That's a lot of oh, wine. Good lad. We don't know. <laughs> Diodorus did not say how large the bowl was. <laughs> that was not in there. So, let's move on. Another one in popular culture. So, strychnine's interesting. Uh, how about Breaking Bad? I've not watched I can't that. say I've watched it. Jamie's seen it. He's seen it. Jamie's on it this way. I have seen Breaking Bad. So, Breaking Bad, with the premise... If you haven't checked out Breaking Bad, my God, check it out. The, the, the premise of a chemistry teacher who's dying of cancer, who makes crystal meth to pay bills, is just, like, the best premise I've ever heard on TV. But anyway... Also wouldn't work in this country. Potentially. Because you get free healthcare, you wouldn't have to sell meth. It's a good point. Good point. Just saying. Long live the NHS. Long live the NHS. If ever there was an, uh, an argument for universal healthcare, there it is. Anyway. More than reasonable point. Now, we all know, for those people that have watched Breaking Bad, there is a very big plot thread in it on how Walt manipulates Jesse. With the plant. With the Well, there's so the plant is one part of it. Mm. There is, he derives something called ricin. And he poisons that kid, and he makes him think that it was the other guy's thing. Exactly. Yeah. And he poisons the kid, so he has a ricin cigarette, so he has ricin that he derives that he never actually uses. He poisons the kid with Lily of the Valley, which mm. is a completely different thing. And then Jesse thinks that it was the ricin, and it was somebody else that did it. And it was the most convoluted thing, but ricin. Ricin, very interesting, because it's in pop culture because of uh, Breaking Bad. So Tokyo Underground train attacks. Yeah, um... Om Shri Uncle Shri... Oh, yeah, God. I'm not going to try and say that. I wrote this down. Om Skrikanyuko something. Oh, my God, I can't read it. Yeah, these crazy people who lived you in Japan. You can't read your own handwriting. Yeah, That's I really can't. Shrininko. <laughs> Om Shrininko. Shrininko? Shrinkio. Om Shrinkio. That's it. I feel like you've said that too many times now. Shrinkio. I can't, I can't make sense of this word. It's got too many bloody consonants yeah, in it. Google Translate. <laughs> this is where you need to say, hey Google, how do you say... Um, Shrinrikyo. Shrinrikyo. There we are, Shrinrikyo. So yeah, they were... So the they Japanese used, doomsday cult. They used, um, they used aerosolized ricin and they released it in the Tokyo subway. It killed 13 people. Right. Nasty stuff. So ricin is actually a really interesting drug. It's found in the seeds of the castor oil plant, um, which is ricinus communis. Is the, is the Latin name. And this is still found in the Mediterranean Basin and East Africa. You can still find this tree. Castor oil is in the one that you can put in your hair, yeah, the one you can castor use in cooking. Yep, and use as a laxative. Um, oh, yeah. back in the old days, they used to use it as a, uh, a labour-inducing agent, castor oil. Interesting. Yep. So castor oil in that effect, so the refined oil of the castor plant, has got no ricin in it. It's in the seeds. Okay. You can you can derive this ricin, and ricin is one of the most lethal things known to man. Again, it's micrograms now per kilo to kill someone. Um, you can't synthesize it from scratch. You have to make it from the castor oil plant. So you need to have these seeds to be able to actually make it. But it's lethal. Now, the pharmacology of ricin is one of the most complicated things I've ever... I tried to read about it briefly, and it is one of the most complicated things I've ever read in my life. So it's effectively a ribosome inactivating protein. So your ribosomes are like your power plants in your eukaryotic cells. They basically synthesize proteins. Ricin gets into your cells and completely obliterates ribosomes. So it means you can't synthesize any protein whatsoever in your body. So you can't synthesize adrenaline, you can't synthesize neurotransmitters, you can't synthesize basic building blocks Enzymes, of cardiac tissue, anything. nothing. You can't make anything. So it kills you slowly. Oh. Oh. 
So it's an, it's it is a brutal drug. It sounds like an utterly brutal drug. And this is actually how it's characterised from its toxicology. So you take ricin and nothing happens for six hours, a day, two days. Slowly you start to get sort of cold flu type symptoms because that's it killing off your immune your immune cells. So the first thing it's going to go after is your uh, your white cells. So you you get ill. You then get better because it then kills off your cytokine response. So you can't generate inflammation, so you feel better. Then you die of awful organ failure because you just have got no way of maintaining your organs. So it sounds like an incredibly cruel drug. This is drug. a really cheerful episode. Yep, it kills, you, it kills you slowly. So it can be anywhere from a day to two weeks to be able to do it. And we know if you know Breaking Bad, at the very end of it, Walter White poisons that businesswoman and, you know, she's like... She's got like cold and flu symptoms, and she's like, and Walt's like, it's probably that ricin that I put in your tea or whatever it was. And yeah, and he kills her, so she's probably dead as it stood. So, pretty, pretty awful drug, but big in literature. So, we've said about um, Om Shrininko or whatever the hell it is. <laughs> Anybody know about any other, any other classic cases of ricin use? Is it the one that they use to. Murder spies. Mm. Ah, was this? Yeah. Uh, the Bulgarian yeah. who uh, was shot uh, in his calf by a, an umbrella guy. Yes. Yes. The one you've got it by the KGB, or it was a Bulgarian Secret Service back in the KGB. Yes, yes. You've I got it. Yes, yeah, yes, you've yes. done it. Well played. Well played. There's a lot of sediment you. in the bottom of this wine. Yeah, it's got a bit of sediment to it. It's probably how old it is. I think. Oh, I can see the sediment. Yeah. So yes, you're absolutely right. Bulgarian dissident. His name was Georgi Markov. He was a very outspoken, um, well, critic, let's say, of the Bulgarian government. He exiled himself to the UK. Uh, the Bulgarian Secret Service came after him, many say with the help of the KGB. He was stabbed in the calf by a little syringe that was connected to an umbrella. It injected a ricin pellet into his calf and he died about two weeks later. And um, that's some proper spy shit, really. That is. That is. That's it's quite hard crazy. I can't believe that's real life. That's it. It sounds that like something out of a movie, doesn't it? My favourite of the James Bond films, Casino Royale, because I think that's an absolutely brilliant film. There is a very famous scene in that film where he's <laughs> at a poker table and he's doing quite well against old um, Weird Eye Le Chiffre. And he's sipping his Vespa Martini, which is highly recommended by the way, I love a good Vespa Martini. And he sips it and then Le Chiffre gives him a look and um, he knows he's been poisoned and then off he goes with the salt and the water. And he staggers around, he gets to his car and then, you know, there's the people in London that say, oh no, it's... Digitalis. Digitalis, Digitalis, Digitalis toxicity. So Digitalis is It also says that he's in ventricular tachycardia and you can see the rhythm in it really isn't ventricular tachycardia. <laughs> <laughs> we'll ignore that. There we are. That's some proper It is a movie stuff. at the end of the day. Exactly. So Digitalis. Digitalis is a, probably the one that should be known the most to us in the medical profession because mm -hmm. this is a drug we use regularly. So Digitalis is the plant and derived from digitalis is the cardiac glycoside digoxin, which is still a very important drug, which we use for AF and we use for heart failure, heart failure as well. Yeah. Um, really, really good drug. Um, the mechanism is a little bit convoluted, but in effect, ATPA's um, channel blocker, which means it keeps sodium inside the cardiac membrane, because it keeps sodium in ch in, inside the cardiac membrane, it, as a byproduct, keeps calcium inside the cardiac membrane. When you get depolarization, you get a massive exflux of calcium outside, so you get bigger contractility and you get bigger, um, uh, more complete emptying of the of the heart as a, as a as a side effect of that. And then also as a result, you get a longer refractory period in the AV node. So that's why it slows the heart rate. It's um, it's chronotropic, so the heart rate goes down. Now, obviously, the problem being that when you're in toxic circumstances, the heart can go so slow that you start to get cardiac instability. 
and that's what potentially happened to Bond at that point. So what you get is a, a, a classic... But luckily there's an antidote to that. Well, there we are. So you get... One this, of the poisons that we do know that there's it. an antidote for. It is one that has got an antidote. So ricin, strychnine, no antidotes to that stuff. Um, all you can get is, like, remove it from the system as best you can. Digoxin, the antidote is... Digibind. Digibind. Digoxin specific antibody. And that's probably in, again, go back to Casino Royale, that man's like, no, don't just let him do it. Bond to the midline, <laughs> to the neck, put it in. <laughs> and it was probably a mix of digibind with atropine that probably saved his life. So well done, that scientist guy that did that. He said something like, it's the blue combi pen, neck, midline, bond. Something there we like are. That. And he does it. And he passes out and Vesper still has to shock him. Yeah, <laughs> defibs him. Paste him. He basically, they basically pace him. Put a pace on him. And he goes, you all right? She goes, yes. And he goes, good. And he goes off. And Back to the right. poker table. <laughs> wins it after digoxin toxicity. So digoxin... The next scene is he then sits in opposite the sheet and goes, sorry, that last hand nearly killed me. <laughs> I'm so delighted to be talking about Bond. I know, you know, I put, I, put, I put this one in just for you because I knew you'd love it. I do love James Bond. So That's much. it. So, in in actual fact, digoxin probably digoxin toxicity probably takes the best part of a day to a week to manifest. The amount of digoxin that he must have drank in that martini would have been so much he would have thrown it up almost in almost instantaneously. So. Yeah, artistic license as it stands, but digoxin is one we actually deal with. Again, any famous cases of digitalis poisoning you're aware of? Apart from Bond? Well, apart from Bond, which, yeah, okay, famous. was famous, yeah. <laughs> so, is it near Foxglove? Foxglove plant, yeah, so Sorry. digitalis is from the Foxglove plant, which is very, very common. So there's actually a lot of people that inadvertently poison themselves, like foragers, that don't know what they're doing, particularly in America, because it's quite a big plant in America. Um, not so much Canada, but America, I'm told. It's too cold in Canada for the foxglove plant. Oh. Um, there's a very famous theorised case of, digita of chronic digitalis poisoning, and this is a painter, a bit of an eccentric painter. Oh, is this... Oh, what's his face? Because he started painting funny, and it's because... Oh, it's... Um, no, Van, not... Van Gogh. No. Oh. Van Gogh. Was it Van, Van Gogh? Gogh? Vincent Van Gogh. So there's some theorised that Van Gogh later in his life developed epilepsy and he was treated by a physician and the physician prescribed digitalis as an anti-epileptic for whatever bloody reason. <laughs> and uh, there is actually a bit of evidence for digoxin use in epilepsy. It's got some weird mechanisms there because it modulates sodium channels. But anyway, he prescribed digitalis and Vincent took digitalis. Now a classic side effect of digoxin uh, toxicity is, I can't remember the full medical word, but it's yellow vision. So you see yellow. What's the, what's the name of it? Is it Xanthopia or something like that? It'd be something, Xanth something or other. I can't remember what it is. That's Greek for yellow. Xanthopia or something like that? can't remember, well, something like I'll that. I'll do a rapid Google. Now, later in Van Gogh's life is when he went through what the critics call his yellow period. Oh where a lot of his pictures started using very heavy use of yellow, which includes one of his most famous pictures, The Starry Night, which has got a blue background, which is logical, but the stars and the moon were painted in yellow, which is very strange in its own right, considering they're white cream. So it's... Thanthopsia. Thanthopsia, there we are. Um, so it's been theorised that during his yellow period, Vincent van Gogh was suffering from digitalis poisoning, at a low level that was causing him to see yellow hmm. that was affecting his ability to, to paint. And so he was using more yellow in his pictures because that's what he saw in real life. Interesting. Mm. And that's all I got, poisons. But our friends, our friends are our foes. Sometimes they're our friends, sometimes they're our foes. Oh. Well, it's a pharmacist's job to decide whether they're a friend or a foe. Mm -hmm. I think it's an important thing. I, I always think now, whenever we prescribe something, you are just remember you're prescribing a poison. You're just trying to have it. You're trying to have it have the appropriate effect. Excellent. Mm. So I'm going to swirl a little bit of my sediment. Yeah. Mm. So this yeah we have found yeah, yeah. there is a good amount of sediment at the bottom of this wine, and it's probably because it's aged for so long. So some of that wine is stuck to the barrel, and when it's been freed up. Mm. It's come back out. It's completely harmless. It's quite common to get it in wines, I think. But yeah, it doesn't affect the taste. It just looks a bit weird. Mm. 
Thank you, Canal. You're welcome. So, uh, my turn now, then? Your turn. So, I am going to kind of also go on a little bit from my last story, um, which you may remember we talked about uh, variolation and the very beginnings of the war on smallpox. And I'm going to move a little bit slightly on from that, which we were talking about the 18th century. I'm going on to the next century. And I'm uh, going to touch on the anti-vaxxer movement. Oh, oh we've gone there. This was a big we've topic gone there. in our last podcast. <laughs> uh, and we kind of skirted around the edges and I thought, sod it. Let's deal with this head on. We're among friends. <laughs> Let's yep, do it. it. Okay. So, um, I... Uh, kind of wanted to explore the very beginnings of the anti-vaxxer movement and, and cool. how it came about mm. and uh, the uh, surprising consequences of it. So, um, end of the 18th century, Edward Jenner, an English country doctor, uh, hears rumour that uh, maids who get cowpox don't get smallpox. Mm. He uh, gets some cowpox pus, puts it into the uh, skin of a young boy's uh, hand, uh, then a few days later rubs in some smallpox, he doesn't get ill, mm. and a legend is born. Indeed. Such ethical Classic. testing right there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. that, is, that is what he did. That's um, old school um, medicine. Um, yes, I mean, ethically, very bad, but a legend was born. Okay. <laughs> um, and so... Um, that was in um, 1796, and then in 1803 they actually set up a royal society to continue funding his research and looking at uh, creating a, uh, a, mass, a vaccine for use. Um, and then it's pretty much almost as soon as that was happening, the very first opposition to vaccines came about. Wow. So it was almost immediate there was opposition. He's a witch. Well, okay. so, witchcraft, I think. <laughs> so, um, let's see why. So, there was one uh, gentleman called John Birch who was the sturgeon extraordinary to the Prince of Wales, and he pamphleteered against Jenner's work, and he was using arguments that you would probably see on social media today. So, he was pamphleteering that vaccination has been too often fatal. That vaccination has introduced new disorders into the human system. <laughs> vaccination is not a perfect security. And then he wraps up with, these facts I maintain can never be disproved. So you've got some nice little bit of fake news, yeah. kind of, Very whatever changing. you say, you're not going to change my mind kind of thing. But can you spot maybe why he was doing this? Because he was using the old method of inoculation and making a lot of money out of it. Mm. And he was also oh. trying some newfangled treatment like electrocution and making a <laughs> bit of money out of it as well. So, finance. so maybe he was slightly biased. Slightly biased, yeah. Slight biased. Mm. Okay, so, um, but then by 1840, they kind of proved that this vaccine works. And there was a, uh, an epidemic in London that killed over 6,000 people uh, between 1837 and 1840. And I, if you remember, the government of the time were in the early Victorian period. This is a very um, laissez-faire government. They don't like to interfere in people's lives. The NHS is over a century away. Mm. You know, Welfare is still very much unchanged since Tudor times. It's all the parish and etc. But even then, the government goes, we need to do something. So they bring out the 1840 Vaccination Act, which said, don't do variolation anymore, it's unpredictable, and we're actually going to provide for free um, uh, smallpox vaccine. We're going to provide it, and this is the government providing healthcare, which was un unheard of really at the time. Um, and then 10, uh, 13 years later, in uh, 1853, they then said, basically, Every child um, born after 1853 has to be vaccinated within the, three, uh, the first three months of their life, and if they're not, the parent is going to get uh, the parents will get fined. Hmm. So there was this uh, big uh, sort of step, and then almost immediately they started being violent protests around the country, with people saying, "You can't do this. You can't step into people's health care." Leave my healthcare alone. Modern day parallels, maybe, <laughs> in some countries. 
mentioning no one. Um, and um, and so essentially, in that same year, the Anti-Vaccination League was set up in London. The League of Anti-Vaccination. So, 1853, the Anti-Vaccination League was established, and essentially, it was kind of a form of social media. It was a way of getting dissenting voices to coalesce, mm. and essentially. The whole method was getting parents who felt that the vaccine had hurt their child to tell their story yeah. and to spread their story. Does this oh. sound familiar to people? It yeah. is a dangerous road. <laughs> Not good science. No. Um, so they basically, the government were like, okay, so there's some dissent going on, we're seeing this. So in 1867, they basically said, okay, we're going to go extend that time. Rather than the first three months, you've got the first 14 years of life. But you do need to vaccinate your kid, and we will find you still. But we have extended your time. Okay. Um, so that same year, another league was formed called the Anti-Compulsory Vaccination League. So you've got another <laughs> league being formed. So I don't like that league. I've got. It's a little bit like this the. This just sounds like a sub league of the same league. Well, it's a little bit like Monty it's Python's. <laughs> you know, the People's Front of Judea and the Judean People's Front. You know, it's basically yeah. Anyway, um, and they actually um, published a formal newsletter called the National Anti-Compulsory Vaccination Reporter catchy very catchy mm. just rolls off the tongue uh and it was one of several newspapers the anti-vaccinator the national anti-compulsory vaccination reporter and the vaccination inquirer so they're all newsletters all being formed all basically with uh parents telling their um telling their story in inverted commas and their main argument was it's not safe and it's not up to the government to decide what gets put into my child, essentially. Mm. And then um, this carried on and on and on and on. And in Leicester in 1885, there was a demonstration which, considering that the city had a population of 190,000, 100,000 people uh, protested wow. quite More than violently. More 50 percent of your population. Wow. Uh, about amazing. you can't vaccinate, you know, against compulsory vaccination. Mm. So this all kicked off. Um, and so there was a royal commission called which um, went on for seven years, it's a long time, listening to all the evidence. And they got scientists and parents all together saying, let's hear the arguments. Um, and then in 1896, they published their findings and they said, vaccination is safe, it's effective. However, we are not going to enforce vaccination anymore. And so therefore it's now you can conscientiously object, so much the same as you can to war, you can mm. conscientiously object and you can be exempt from vaccination. Um, and basically the, the, the whole idea of compulsory vaccination in this country was killed dead. And I think it's that- It's crazy that it was yeah. so many years ago. Yeah. yeah, yeah. The concept. And considering that... Considering in, the science has moved on so much yeah, since then. absolutely. And, and they said it's safe, but we're not going to do it. And, and um, in, you consider around all that time that the franchise was getting wide and more and more people could vote. And I suppose parties were going, we don't want to kick off. And even the, this, this fledgling party that was forming at the time called the Labour Party. Oh, wow. Oh, wow. You may have heard of them. I wonder what came of them. Um, they they were obviously a socialist party. They were they were big on government intervention, and even they said no, you cannot enforce mm. vaccination on people. So it shows it was like a political, real toxic hot potato. Mm. Um, and uh, that was it. Even with the NHS coming in, um, they said no, we're not going to um, have compulsory vaccinations ever again. And, and that's the way we stayed ever since. Even as more vaccines have come in, it's always been a non-compulsory, here's your advised schedule. But um, I was quite shocked to see how, to learn how early it was. And actually that the first response was, yes, this is a great tool yep. and we should be compulsory with it. And people went, no. 
Are there any countries where it is absolutely compulsory? Uh, so it says here, just a quick Google search, nine countries in the whole of the world. Wow. Okay, no, maybe not the world, maybe in the EU. Bulgaria, Croatia, <laughs> Czech Republic, France, Hungary, Italy, Latvia, Poland and Slovakia. Oh no, sorry, this is only MMR. So MMR vaccination is mandatory in those countries. You can be fined if you don't, um, if you don't do that. Uh, there are lots of other one. There are lots of other countries where apparently all vaccinations are compulsory. There are. Mm. Apparently, we're not one of them. We're not one of them. Although it was briefly talked about um, earlier on this year, before we got sidetracked by other things. I think it's an interesting thing. So uh, that the concept. Maybe mm. the concept of any of anyone having well, the, the the concept of compulsory anything in relation to healthcare isn't a healthcare question. It's a philosophical question. If you think about it, it's not about the fact that you're telling it's it's absolutely logical and the evidence base says you should do this for the better good for the greater good of the public as well as your children. It's your right to choose. It's a negative right versus a positive right. It's the absolute classic argument. It's like the good place, Kim. But that's why you'll never... That's why I don't think compulsory vaccination will ever happen, because it's a philosophical argument rather than a healthcare argument. And philo philosophy will always trump healthcare in people's heads. Not that I agree with that. <laughs> so I did want to just wrap up by mentioning one person, because um, I think it is important to mention this character. Um, doctor, I used the phrase loosely, Dr. Andrew Wakefield. Uh, yeah, we all know this guy. We all know this. Uh, yeah. This little, uh, little Yeah. So... Um, I think it's important to point out his research. I, again, I use the term very loosely. Um, because essentially, you know, I just talked about how Victorian was all about just some parents coming forward and they said that they'd noticed this, that, you know, their child had been ill from the vaccine. And essentially, Andrew Wakefield did very much the same. What can you, do you guys remember that time? So yeah, Andrew Wakefield, it was, it was the time of my, so this, I was talking about Andrew Wakefield when my parents were making a decision to vaccinate me for the MMR. So they, I remember my mum and dad told me like we were deciding about whether to vaccinate you when I was a little baby and all this stuff was in the media at that point about the MMR vaccine related to autism etc and they said we weren't sure, we didn't know, we're not, we, we're not educated we're not in this kind of thing yeah. so we're going to look at what's in the papers and stuff and at that point it was, I was lucky that it was a very good GP mm. that we were under and they called my mum and dad in and said don't listen to that nonsense. Give them the vaccine. <laughs> don't, be, don't be stupid. And and they did, which was good for them. But you can understand how... Good for you. Yeah, good for me. But you can also understand how there are a lot of children that are now grown up adults who didn't have that vaccine, who are now kind of at that stage where they're questioning why their parents didn't give them that vaccine and why that you evidence can't. base was incomplete in that sense that's it but i think the thing is it's a different time as well right now yeah. so if you've got if you, if you think right now even though we say there is a lot of false there's a lot of bad news there's false news stories about anti-vax stuff there the information is out there if you ask the right people and you actually look at it you will find that information 20 30 years ago there wasn't the access to that information. If you saw something in the newspaper, you'd believe it yeah. because it was published. Mm. So it was a different time. You can completely understand you it. You can, absolutely. But it's the poor... I mean, this, this was stuff that was taught to us in university as an example of poor research methods. So that's and how important the social yeah. media can be in influencing healthcare mm. decisions. So that's the thing I want to talk... I want to just touch on. So do you know what Andrew Wakefield did? What he went yeah, to children's parties, didn't he? He paid them to take blood samples. Yeah. Yeah. And and what else? And and what what else did he do? Because he 
what was the basis of his I thought a lot research. Of his, a lot of his stuff was just falsified, pure falsified. Yeah, so, yeah, so essentially this was a, an article that came out in uh, February 1998, and it was in The Lancet, which is about as high up as you can get in medicine. Yep. Very esteemed paper. Who, in fairness, published a they retraction. They did republish a retraction, mm. and, and yes, and uh, absolutely, and everything. Um, so basically he was funded by um, um, a law firm who were trying to make money out of suing vaccine companies. Uh, so There's always money in the first red flag. Do you think, yeah. do you think that he, um, that he um, revealed that fact to the Lancet? No, of course he didn't. Um, so you know that box where it says Declaration of interest. Conflicting Interests? Yeah, he, he didn't do that bit. And so he essentially went up to 12, uh, the parents of 12 kids and whom had a mixture of, of autism spectrum disorders, various gastric problems as well, and he essentially asked them, do you think that those symptoms of those illnesses came around the same time your child had their MMR? And the parents, thinking back, however many years went, hmm, I think so, yes. That was his research. Confirmation bias, I believe it's called. Wow. That was his research. Yep. Twelve crazy. children. The parents of twelve children, yeah. Wow. Yep. Yep. Ruined a generation. And that was his research. So yeah, it, it's it's um yeah, absolutely there. Still ruining generations as he he's in the States now, isn't he? And as he moves location, you can mm. track outbreaks. Mm. That's the thing, from what I read about him is I don't think he I don't think he was a negligent well he was a negligent scientist, but he actually believed that stuff. And he made his he, he went for jur he went for journalistic science, as I call it. So he had a he had an idea and he went out and found found data to prove his idea, which is the absolute mm. opposite of how science works. Classically. And so he'll go and do anything and he'll always have a premise and he'll find the data to support his premise and it's just the way you portray it. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I mean, he, he, he didn't reveal his secret funding. Um, most of the other authors who were listed didn't actually know what he was writing, so they got into a lot of trouble as well because they were putting their name to something they weren't reading. Yeah. Uh, and he was he was struck off in 2010. Yeah. So he is not a doctor. So if you find him using that term... He is not a doctor anymore. He is—he has no title. He's not a medical doctor. I think he has a PhD, so he can actually use the term doctor. Just saying. I think he has—he has got a PhD in some weird stuff that I don't know about. I read about. Oh, Hopefully, it's Gillian, not. Doctor Gillian McKee. This is where this this is your problem. You see, doctor's not a protected term. Pharmacist, however, <laughs> <laughs> you can't call yourself a pharmacist. We'll, we'll throw you in jail, mate. Uh, um, absolutely. And um, earlier this year, there was a paper uh, that looked at uh, six hundred and fifty-seven thousand four hundred and sixty-one children in Denmark. A little bit more thorough than uh, the original study. And do you do you think they found a link between MRR MMR vaccination? Nope. Absolutely not. So yeah, like Jinx. Kim has just said, because there is no link; it just doesn't make sense. More than six hundred thousand versus twelve. 12. Yeah, ridiculous. Um, but it remains quite big business. Uh, so the National Vaccination Information Center in the U.S. Uh, has an annual income of one point two billion U.S. dollars. So this is big business, wow. and um, even Donald Trump. I say even Donald Trump is completely in keeping oh, with him. Of course, Donald Trump has tweeted about this as well, uh, even though he has since said, you got to vaccinate your kids. Um, but actually, um, in America, what's quite interesting is that the people who are most likely to... Because um, Americans tend to be where we think about... Yeah, anti-vaccine in America, don't we? And they tend to be white, educated, and of higher income. And actually what seems to motivate them is this notion of purity and liberty and being natural. Mm. So there may be, you know, crystals and things like that and wind chimes, you know, maybe. There we are. Well, and it's, yeah, you know, it's a, a bit like uh, on a tangent, what I think a lot about um, people that go in for completely natural childbirth 
Yeah, that's absolutely fine. You can be natural, you natural, whatever that is. <laughs> <laughs> you can decide to give birth naturally, but you've got to take on the consequences, which is that if if you decide not to vaccinate and use antibiotics and you're, you're likely to die. Like, you know, everything you're taking is natural originally. We've just made it better. <laughs> In a laboratory. You need to take aspirin. You've, you've had a massive MI, so you need to take aspirin. They're like, yeah, but I'd rather take some natural. It, it's bloody willow bark, mate. It's, well, it's, it's, it is na- it's as natural as it gets. We've just made it better. And in a nice pill format so you don't have to stew it. But conversely, there are people that will say, oh, all I take is natural things. Oh, what are you taking, by the way? St. John's wort. Um, That has a lot of potential consequences. (laughs) Um, Kim mentioned there about saving lives, and I just want to to close uh, with with some statistics. Um, So in in 1901... 52% of childhood deaths were due to infectious diseases in England and Wales. Mm -hmm. Um, By the year 2000, it was 7.4%. In 1901, 40.6% of all deaths in England and Wales were children. So four out of every 10 deaths were due to children dying. Uh, By the year 2000, it was 0.9%. Wow. And vaccines have been a huge, huge, huge part of Telling. That. Game changer. Telling. Absolutely. Real game changer. Uh, so, yeah, vaccinate your kids. Um, and, yeah, as Kim said, Andrew Wakefield is followed by measles uh, and Elle McPherson. <laughs> he is going out with Elle McPherson. I will close on that. <laughs> yep, Kim is pulling a face. <laughs> wow. The Elle McPherson wow. is going out with Andrew Wakefield. Wow. Anyway, there we go. <laughs> what a weird journey. <laughs> prevention, we always say, is better than treatment. <laughs> and, there's, and there's no better prevention than a vaccination. Absolutely. Nine, nine out of ten vaccines for whatever condition you can think of these days are inactivated vaccines. It's quite rare now. So MMR is one of the rare examples now of a active attenuated vaccine and even then it's incredibly rare anybody would develop unless you're incredibly immunocompromised you would not develop the condition from the vaccination an inactivated vaccine it is effectively impossible you might feel a bit crap for a couple of days because the whole point is it's supposed to stimulate your immune response and that's absolutely natural you will not get the disease that you're being vaccinated for by getting that vaccination it's not possible and seeing the the diseases that we vaccinate against mm. you would much prefer to have that reaction a few days of crappiness for a of days yeah. than illnesses that kill you well that's it i mean the the, the most soul destroying thing last last year which would have been last winter now was myself as, as the senior pharmacist for the hospital being called in to organize IV immunoglobulin for measles for, for babies because they're dying of measles because they weren't vaccinated. That is soul-destroying. It was absolutely not necessary. And there were more repercussions from not vaccinating than vaccinating. Absolutely. absolutely. And, and there's also the, um, the point of sort of herd immunity as well because there are those that can't get back from yeah, it because that's they right. are mm. that's right. you know, immunocompromised because they have genuine allergies because they are too young mm. and if they are exposed to those viruses those illnesses because the greater population isn't vaccine vaccinated vaccine vaccine that's even more tragic Absolutely, absolutely. And I think that's a classic example for people like us who work in situations where we're likely to encounter people who are sick, people who are ill, people who are immunocompromised, people who are going to be most prone to that. We have to make sure we maintain the herd immunity effect. So, uh, cool. So we've had whether uh, a drug is a medicine or a poison. Mm -hmm. Uh, We've had the history of the anti-vaxxer movement there and compulsory vaccination. It's interesting, though, because now I can't. So by my own definition, can I call... Can I exclude a vaccine from being a poison? Yes, yes you can. Uh, so, uh, yes, you most certainly can. What did we 
think of the wine. I thought it was really good. So this whole bottle debt has gone down really well. Mm. The sediment is really interesting. It's quite a lot of this. I don't remember that in the line. So I think they probably got rid of that when they poured. You know why they they used a they used a filter when they poured the bottle I think but it, it, it doesn't taste of anything it's just a little bit odd looking in the glass but it's a lot of sediment here it probably gives a bit of that smokiness to the wine mm. because when I think when you put your nose in the glass it does smell a bit you, you can definitely get a bit of smoke and I think that's the chocolate side of the blood and chocolate but it's it's incredibly easy drink, drinking it's rich but it's juicy as well it's definitely got a bit of juicy to it I was just enjoying the bottle and the description on the back mentions drinking the episode which is <laughs> fitting today yeah, episode is. episode 22 we should add this is episode 22 so richard kelly gives every wine he finds an episode number and then it's a limited cast number that he impo imports over so we've started at episode 22 which is not ideal but it's uh, <laughs> done like a star wars thing of starting at a strange number that's it but it's a lovely i think it's a lovely wine i think the blend works really well so you've got the, the the real juiciness of the shiraz and the cab has got the smokiness to it and it works really well mm. you can you can drink it pretty damn easily and it goes down really it's really well balanced it's got tannins to it but what do you think bella well, the ultimate question, how many quacks would you give? Oh, <laughs> <the thing. laughs> how many quacks? Who's starting off? Ladies first. Ladies first. Um, Can we get I, my calculator? I've famously been unable to do maths. <laughs> I'm going to give it a solid four out of five quacks. Gosh, that's a, Gosh, that's a strong oh, start. Strong, very strong. I'm, I'm being bold. I thought mm. about going middle ground. But I'm, <laughs> well, I'm just bold like the wine. I would give it the same four. Gosh. Um, so I think all considered, I'd, I'd be more than happy to give it a four. I think it's a really, really good wine. It's not perfectly balanced. It's not perfectly balanced, but I, th I think it's an easy, easy drinking wine or with food, you've got to give it a four. It's very good stuff. Gosh. So it comes down to... Mm, I'm going to give it a three and a half. Fair? 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 <laughs> The cynic that he is, <laughs> which or maths, <laughs> as, we, as, as we say in this country, because we do it more than once. Um, <laughs> Three point eight seven five quacks. Is that our highest scorer so far? I can't remember now. <laughs> I can't remember now. It has been a while. Uh, I think we gave. The Pinot Noir from Chile, a four. Yeah. yeah. Average, okay. to be fair. So, so I think that was this the is one coming in as a second, this one, yeah. Mm. I think there's some nice berries there, it's a bit of smokiness. My tongue is definitely covered in tannins right now. Yeah. I'm definitely getting that. It's, it's lovely, nice. but, it's, but it's good balance. I, d I really did like this wine, it was very good. Mm. Mm. Just good. don't let the sediment put you off. Yeah, that's it. And you can strain it. You can buy the. So the, the, there's. I, I probably even had one that I could have put into this, but we've got things that you can put into the bottle when you open it that have a fine mesh strainer. It'll keep all the sediment out if you don't like that. Kim is just pointing out the sediment line on the bottle. Oh yeah, you can see it. The only thing, actually, just saying that, that cork breaking up was very disappointing because I, I, you know, I've, I've been known to pull a cork out of many a bottle of wine. <laughs> and that's not happened to me in a long time. That, did, that didn't come, the, the cork just broke up, but I think it's the age of the bottle in fairness, so. Right. I think you should also store them horizontally instead of vertically. I do store it horizontally. It was horizontally stored. Just a tip for any Yeah, you should do that wine for the lovers out there. Wine lovers, you should, because it actually keeps moisture in the cork and it stops the cork from being porous. So the moisture gets into the cork in the in the side that's the, that the bottle's in. It swells and it gives you a good airtight barrier. So don't store bottles of wine upright. Store them on the side. Excellent. Well, thank you very much. Two interesting stories and a very good bottle of wine. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, Kim. Thank you. Thank you, Canal. Thank you, Canal. The moon is right. <laughs> <laughs> thank you, Dr. Thomas. We're gonna have to explain that. Yeah. You've got footage of you singing about it. Should we just quickly because now then you then you don't have to cut it all out. But um... I'm sure there's a copyright involved in thank here. You, thank you, Bella. <laughs> 
and thank you everyone. Um, thank you, Jamie. So there's a there's a video on YouTube that somebody has put together where it is uh, a, it is Paul McCartney's Wonderful Christmas Time, and yet every line is the moon is right. And that's basically what Canal was mentioning. <laughs> and um, we'll probably get that playing us out. Merry Christmas, Merry Christmas, Merry Christmas from the cracks. <laughs> Merry Christmas, 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 Merry